All right, everybody. Welcome to the Jason Timph Podcast. Thanks again for taking time out of your day uh, to join me to talk some hoops. Um, today, I'm going to be primarily focusing on the NBA restart. Uh, my early thoughts on the idea that they're going to try to get going uh, in December. And then I'm also going to do a mailbag. And I already have received a bunch of questions, but I will take a few from the live comments as well. So go ahead and drop any of your questions, any topics you want to discuss in the comments here on the Periscope feed. And as I get to the end, I will get to some of those as well. Um, So as all of you heard from Shams and from Woj today, um, it's looking like the league is going to try to start on December 22nd. Now, there is still some question as to whether or not the Players Association will agree to this. I tend to think that if we can follow anything that we've learned from the last few years in the NBA, it's that the players at the end of the day can usually talk tough, but they will probably follow the dollars. And in this case, as you saw Woj report earlier, I think it was Woj, it might have been Shams, um, but they're talking about the difference between starting in December and starting much later to be roughly about $500 million, which if you know anything about the CBA, that means a roughly $250 million going directly to the players. So at the end of the day, I think like when they get into a room and they sit down, you're going to have uh, the Players Association talk about a bigger delay, particularly for the players who just got out of the bubble, who are going to want a bigger layoff. But once they start seeing the numbers, once they see you know stuff with the TV ratings and how it could impact Uh, um, future dollars for the players to make sure they stay in the traditional schedule for next season, uh, you know, starting in October and finishing in June. Once they really get to see the dollars and cents on the table, I think it's going to be a no brainer for them to to sign up for that. Um, At this point, they're already sacrificing so much money. If you know anything about the way the CBA works, it's not like they're guaranteed to get what their contract says. If you're, you're on a $10 million contract, that's great. But if the league revenue is 30% of, or 70% of what they expected, that means you're taking a 30% pay cut on what you're expecting your contract to be. So uh, at the end of the day, once they start seeing the numbers, I don't think it'll be too long of a discussion. And then uh, I don't know if you guys heard uh, uh, Brian Winhorst a couple weeks ago on his podcast basically reported that um, the owners – are already kind of like planting the seeds of the fact that they think that playing this next season is going to end up costing them money. It won't even be a profitable kind of thing. And uh, I'm not sure how much truth there is to that, but what I do think that that does is it's part of their overarching leverage campaign against the players, which is, look, we're just doing this for the health of the league. If we're up to us financially, we'd skip the season altogether. We're already all going to lose some money. You guys got to understand that starting in December is going to put more dollars in both of our pockets. So let's just go ahead and do it that way. And I think they'll agree. So on that note, I think that it's uh, um, almost a certainty that they will get started in late December on, on the 22nd, like they said. So what does that mean for all of the teams that are that are coming back? Well, first of all, it's an absolutely huge advantage for Brooklyn and for Golden State. These are two contenders that I know Brooklyn went to the bubble, but they're two primary players 
um, you know, three, three, three are their primary players, three guys who will probably start for them. DeAndre Jordan, Kyrie Irving, and Kevin Durant did not go to the bubble. Kevin Durant hasn't played in two years. You know, from that standpoint, uh, uh, teams like that, teams like Golden State, Clay Thompson hasn't played in nearly two years. Steph Curry uh, has barely played in the last two years. So from that standpoint, those teams coming into a truncated season, having to play back-to-backs a lot, having to play back-to-back-to-backs a lot potentially because we saw that in 2012, three games and three nights. I wouldn't be surprised if that came back. When you look at all of those things, teams that are fresh going into that, uh, not only from a motivation standpoint but from a physical standpoint, they're most definitely going to have an advantage. Uh, Now, what does it mean for the teams that have been playing in the bubble? I think it's hard on them mentally. Uh, without a doubt going from being in that bubble to coming out and only having a couple of months to kind of get your you know wits back before you get back to work is going to be tough but I think when they get back into the swing of things they're going to be fine they love playing basketball and when they get to play a home game and go home to their family and go home to their families I think they're going to be fine when they get to go on a road game and inevitably make their way to some establishment even if it's not necessarily recommended uh, I would imagine that they're going to be fine um uh, so, you know, the the only thing that I would be concerned about potentially is for players who did make it deep into the bubble, um, there is this understanding that, you know, okay, you started a training camp in early July and you played through the middle of October and you're going to get a couple of months off, but you're starting in the middle of December And if you make another deep playoff run next year, you're playing into the middle of June. So to make a long story short, that's essentially nine nine months of basketball in a 12-month span at an extremely high level, at a championship level, because you were one of the teams who made it deep into the bubble. So from that standpoint, I would be moderately concerned about, you know, uh, serious injuries just, just based on the fact that these guys have been playing so much basketball you know, in such a short period of time. That's a lot more than they're accustomed to in that year. That doesn't mean, you know, we, we don't know any, uh, a lot of the studies that have been done on load management and, you know, and heavy minutes and things like that aren't necessarily, you know, all that uh, uh, revealing as to whether or not it, it has a real effect on injuries. But that'd be one thing to keep, a, uh, keep an eye on. Uh, which takes me to my first question that I got, which was, what will the toughest challenges be for the Lakers as a team this year? And now those challenges just became twofold because it's not only the fact that they're uh, uh, defending a title, which comes with its its own set of circumstances and challenges, but they're also now the team that is uh, uh, going to be benefit or going to be most challenged by the quick turnaround to start the next season. And so, you know, first of all, you look at what the normal challenges that face a contender are, which first and foremost is motivation. You know, like last year the Lakers had. LeBron, who was on what he himself was calling a revenge tour. You've got Anthony Davis, who's playing on a good basketball team for the first time in his career. You've got uh, you've got a bunch of role players who are on what most people were considering to be kind of like last chance contracts for them. So from that standpoint, the roster from top to bottom was full of guys that had every reason to go out and play their ass off every night. And now that's changed. And don't get me wrong, like they're pros, they're going to find some sort of motivation, but the reality is, is they will be a lesser motivated team this year than a lot of their peers will be, and uh, it'll be something that they will fight mentally all year long. And then the second one is the famous Pat Riley-ism that you've heard, which is the disease of more. 
So now all of a sudden guys who were comfortable playing in smaller roles may be more, you know, more drawn to the idea that they want to try to do more because now that ultimate championship carrot in the in front of them seems a little bit smaller and they start to think about some of their personal goals. So that'll be something to watch. And, you know, a great example is like, now to be clear, I don't think this will be a problem, but, you know, LeBron and Anthony Davis got along really, really well in this season because of their mutual goal of winning a championship. But who knows how that goal evolves as they move forward already having been champions. Now, to be clear, I don't think that will be a problem. I think their relationship is kind of built for this. But those are the kinds of challenges that defending champions are going to face. And so all of that gets compounded by the fact that now you're playing in this truncated season and you're uh, uh, doing it on a quick turnaround, which takes those symptoms and kind of worsens them. And, you know, like as a result of that, what it's going to be, what, what the Lakers are going to be really tempted to do is let their foot way off the gas and be a poor effort team, which kind of inevitably leads to bad habits, which is one of the things that I preach about all the time on Twitter, which is, you know, uh, there are habits in basketball that go above and beyond, you know, effort. So for instance, like, if you're a, we see this a lot in NBA history, championship level team wins a championship. They're still arguably the most talented team in the league, but over the course of the season, they let their habits slip and then they turn it on or try to turn it on late in the season. But, you know, there's always this phase after you start trying hard again, where the habits aren't there. You know, a lot of stuff, especially on the defensive end of the ball is instinctual. It's, you know, you see something happen and you're reacting to it and not like overthinking, you're just reacting. And, you know, my favorite example of this is the 2014 Heat. You know, even with Dwayne Wade's decline, even with a lot of those older veteran players kind of reaching the end of the rope, you know, there was still a lot of talent on that team. LeBron was the best version of himself. Chris Bosh had become a three-point shooter. The Lakers had gone all in on uh, Bosh at the five, so they had their spacing figured out. And what ended up actually uh, hurting them was they had, they had developed bad habits. They became a, a bad defensive team. They were outside of the top 10. I think they were 11th in, in defensive efficiency. So when they ran into a team like the Spurs, who really required them to be extremely dialed in on the defensive end of the ball, they didn't adjust fast enough, and they ended up getting themselves beat. So those are the things that the, the Lakers are going to be fighting this year, is trying to maintain good habits and, and trying to make it so that, you know yeah, they're never going to be the same maniacal beast mentally that they were last season but if they can get as close to that as possible then their talent can carry them through at the end of the day and then you know as it as it pertains to the shortened season it's really as simple as trying to limit minutes and then having the trainer uh kind of error on the side of giving guys rest when they're dealing with soreness and being banged up and so on and so forth so we'll talk about this a lot when we get to the uh laker offseason stuff but this is a great example of why um, you know the centers are so important to this Laker team, even though they really can't play in key uh, postseason series. You know, just because they didn't need Dwight Howard and Javale to beat Miami or to beat you know uh, to beat Houston, doesn't mean they don't need them in the regular season. Because the truth of the matter is, is they uh, the biggest thing that Dwight and Javale provided for this Laker team this year was just a physical presence that allowed them to keep LeBron and AD, you know, around 35 or less minutes 
and allowed them to uh, to allow those guys to take the physical beating so that they could get through the 82 game season with less wear and tear on their stars. And that's going to continue to be the case this year because with the with the truncated season, with all the back to backs, with the short turnaround, now you're going to want to keep LeBron and AD down around like 32 minutes in the regular season. You're going to want them down in that like Giannis range, and then you can kind of ramp them up as you get closer to the postseason or in the early rounds of the postseason. But if you're playing your stars 32 minutes, uh, that, that's that that requires you to have depth, and it requires you to lean hev- much more heavily on your role players. So, you know, that's going to be the interesting thing for the Lakers is, you know, trying to counterbalance, uh, um, you know, health with their habits. And I think the easiest way to do that is with minute limits. It's a lot easier to look LeBron and AD in the face and be like, I need you to be the same guys you were last year. And my reward to you is going to be it's only for 32 minutes a night. You know, like we're going to cut back your the volume of your workload but we're going to try to expect you to be near what you were last season to maintain the identity and the, and the habits of the team that were championship level habits and championship type of identity. Um, so those are the things that the Lakers are going to have to look out for. Just watching their minutes, watching their, uh, uh, you know, watching their wear and tear, making sure guys get rest when they're dealing with injuries and when they're a little fatigued. And then that mental challenge, like we discussed. So the next question that I received from the mailbag, who is the biggest threat to the Lakers this year? So um, to me, this threat remains the Clippers. And it's because of the fact that, you know, basketball is a, is a matchup game. Styles make fights. You've heard that saying a million times. And if you look at, you know, for instance, the Warriors, who I view as a team that is not a threat to the Lakers, their strengths play right into the Lakers' hands because the Lakers' defensive scheme is built around ball pressure on the perimeter, which I would expect them to continue next year. Their their defensive scheme is built around pressure on the ex, uh, pr- pressure on the perimeter, taking away the three point line and forcing guys into their size, forcing guys to drive into to Dwight Howard, forcing him to drive into Javale McGee, Anthony Davis, whoever it is that they have next year uh, on the interior. And so, from that standpoint. The Warriors, defense, the Warriors' offensive scheme is built around ball movement and drive and kick uh, started from double teams drawn by their shooters. So Steph and Clay drawing a ton of attention from the three-point line, leading to guys working in three-on-two or working in four-on-three, driving and kicking to each other. There is not a great deal of mid-range scoring talent on that Warriors roster. Steph is a good mid-range scorer but he's not a guy who consistently operates out of that range so you know I think I think that the Warriors lack a size and the way that the Warriors offense is structured I think they would play right into the Lakers hands and I think they'd get beat whereas the Clippers they bring a lot of things to the table that would uh, at least cause matchup issues for the Lakers that doesn't mean I think the Clippers would beat the Lakers I still think that the Lakers are a better team but assuming the Clippers come back with Paul George and and uh, Kawhi Leonard and with, you know, let's say a slightly better role player uh, set, you know, they ditch Lou Williams and Montrezl Harrell, they run their offense through Paul George and, and Kawhi Moore, uh, then the issue becomes they're an elite defensive team with lots of defensive versatility who can do a lot of the things that Miami did to L.A., which is force Anthony Davis to be a jump shooter, you know, make LeBron score over wings all day long. Uh, all series long they can do all those things and their offense is structured in a way that they do a lot of scoring out of the mid-range 
which gives them the ability to eventually uh, uh, find quality shots against a truly elite Laker defense. So to me, at the end of the day, the biggest threat to the Lakers remains the Clippers. So the the next topic I want to get at, and I've received a million of these questions, including one of the live questions from you guys, is who do you think the Lakers should target in free agency? Or I've heard, you know, best trade targets for the Lakers. Who should the Lakers focus on retaining? All of these Lakers offseason related topics. And from that standpoint, um, I'm going to be doing a full-length pod like this with Raj at Unwritten Rules, you guys know, on Twitter, at some point later this summer. And at that point, um, I'll go for a full hour or so in depth into this topic. But I will give you guys today kind of my initial layout of how I would see the Laker offseason going. And I think it's a delicate process because first and foremost, you have to understand that, you know, one of my biggest basketball philosophies is to not fix what's broken. And I have a funny story about this. Back when I was playing in at Arizona Christian University, I uh, uh, there was a, a, one of my former roommates, one of my best friends in college, Rest in peace. He unfortunately passed away earlier this year. Um, but his name was Talib, and he was an All-American guard when I was at Arizona Christian University. And, and we would play, uh, we would have practice during the day, and then he would invite me back with, uh, you know, three or four guys to go do these two-on-two or three-on-three runs at the gym late at night, like at like 10 o'clock, which in retrospect was kind of crazy because, it, you know, we would have practice during the day, and it would be something that would put a lot of wear and tear on our bodies, but Talib was a big believer in uh, learning, you know, winning offensive habits and uh, in overall just winning habits. And he would always work, Talib was a little bit older when he was playing on the team. He was 31. I was 22. A lot of the other guys on the team were in their 20s. And uh, uh, he would constantly just try, try to get us to be at his level mentally as a basketball player. And so we play two on two and three on three and him and I would play like pick and roll uh, he would commonly put me on his team because him and I played together in the in the starting lineup. So he wanted us to develop that chemistry, you know. And I'd do pick and roll, and I'd get like a a, a small guy switched on to me, and I would uh, kind of shoot a little hook shot over the top, and I'd score. And then the next possession, I'd like pick and pop to the three point line because I always was a shooter. And Talib would like stop the game and yell at me and be like, "What are you doing? You just scored in the low block. Do the exact same thing." over and over again until they stop you. Do not switch away from something that isn't broken. And over the course of the season, he really worked on me in that regard that, you know, uh, if I ever discovered, a, a, you know, an inefficiency in the defense or something that was working, I would stick with it until I absolutely couldn't use it anymore. And, and it went even further than that to the defensive end of the ball. Like I'd, I'd box out and I'd get a rebound, you know, two or three times in a row. But then I would, you know, one the fourth time I would forget to box out and, you know, Talib again, stop the game and just start yelling at me and be like, like, what are you doing? Like you, you have to box out. If you don't box out, we could lose this game, you know? And it was, it was a matter of habits and just understanding that in any, in any given possession, every little thing has to be done right. And uh, no matter what, you don't get away from something that's working. And so that's always been one of my ideologies. And so the Lakers, you have to remember the Lakers have an identity and their identity is that, they're, they're big and physical, and they're going to wear you down. Their identity is that they're going to defend the hell out of the basketball. They have a scheme that fits around that defense. And the identity on offense is everything goes through LeBron and AD. They do not get into the habit of running too many actions for role players like the Clippers did that ended up getting their stars out of rhythm. You saw with the Clippers... 
they ran so much stuff through Lou Williams and so much stuff through Montrez Harrell, and they let Reggie Jackson do stuff, and they let Marcus Morris do stuff. And it really hurt Paul George's rhythm because he would struggle night in and night out uh, because his role in the offense was funky because he was one of six ball handlers instead of one of two. And that's what the Lakers had to figure out. So it's very important when the Lakers are approaching this offseason to make sure that their moves fit into their current identity. Because if they get too carried away bringing in players that change the identity, now you're running the risk of, of becoming a team that's not a championship team. Because your current identity is a championship identity. So it's very important that they, you, they, they focus this offseason on making sure that they kind of perfect their existing identity instead of getting too far out of their identity. Um, so starting with, uh, there's kind of three elements to this. Who do you bring back? Um, what kind of players would you potentially target in trades? And what kind of players are you looking at in the free agent market? You know, and as far as the, uh, uh, the offseason goes from a retention standpoint, the players that I'm not at all worried about bringing back are Markeith. Uh, I know a lot of people like Markeith, but I thought he was kind of overrated defensively. And then um, on the offensive end of the floor, while he did make some shots, I think that's something that they can find from other players. And I'm more, more worried about the fact that he couldn't really guard anybody. Uh, Deion Waiters, who cares? I know there's a lot of Laker optimism about uh, Deion Waiters, but he does not fit into the identity of this team at all. Same goes for J.R. Smith. And then JaVale McGee, I think that if you can get someone like DeMarcus Cousins to play that JaVale McGee role instead, I think that's a better route. And, you know, for all of the things that JaVale brought to the table this year, I thought he was a little more negative than positive. And I think that if you can get somebody different, those are the, the guys to go after. The, the guys that I would absolutely try to bring back, uh, like a high priority, would be Dwight Howard. Because Dwight Howard is, uh, like, Dwight Howard becomes infinitely more valuable now as a result of the quick turnaround and the truncated season. That now you're looking at a situation where... Um, Dwight's depth that he provides, Dwight's physical presence inside becomes immensely important in that, you know, a quick turnaround season with games like probably every other night. Dwight is a high, high priority. So when it comes to their uh, cap exception, that is the primary player I would target. If you, if you, can't, if you can't get him at a veteran minimum, then I, that's a guy that I'd be willing to dip into the exception for. Uh, Avery Bradley, my guess is that he's going to opt out of his $5 million for next year. And the Lakers can sign him at, a, I think it's a 10% raise, so they can get him at like 5.7 or 5.5 or whatever it is for next season. A little bit of a raise for Avery and uh, uh, gets him back on the roster. I think that's an important target for them just in terms of guard depth. Uh, KCP, I expect to opt in, but who knows with KCP. He's got such like an under-the-table thing going on with Clutch that who knows uh, uh, what they're going to end up doing. And then uh, the only guy that I think that I would bring back but only at a veteran minimum is Rajon Rondo. Because, you know, while Rajon Rondo had some moments for the Lakers in this postseason run, I happen to be one of the guys who thought he was just as much bad as good. You know, for all of the good moments that he had, there were games where I thought he really hurt the team. And while his IQ is something that has been touted, I think that LeBron kind of accomplishes that goal anyway in and of himself. It's kind of a redundancy in that regard. Like if Rondo's not in the locker room, it's not like the team's going to stop watching film. Like you've got LeBron there for that. LeBron is a nerd of the game who's going to take that same approach. And uh, I don't think that it's a huge loss uh, to get to, to lose him. But if you can bring him back at a veteran minimum, which I think the Lakers can, I think you have to because at the very least, he does give you that uh, um, that potential postseason, 
you know, any other, like every other game, he was one of the best players on the floor, even if he was the worst player in some of the other games. Uh, so yeah, Rondo at a veteran minimum, KCP Bradley and Dwight, I think you've got to try to extend yourself, do whatever it takes to get him to come back. And then I'm not worried at all about Markeith, Dion, uh, JR, or JaVale. So I made a list of free agent targets. I dug into this a lot this afternoon. Um, uh, the main free agents that I saw in the entire list of the league free agents that I think the Lakers would consider was uh, Danilo Gallinari, Wesley Matthews, Glenn Robinson III, Justin Holliday, Gerald Green, Ryan Anderson, Darren Collison, Boogie Cousins, who's technically a free agent, uh, Iman Shumpert, and Mo Harkless. And the names that I circled that I thought were kind of uh, you know high-priority targets in that list were Gallinari, Mo Harkless, Wes Matthews, Boogie Cousins, and Darren Collison. So first, Boogie Cousins, I'd go after him to try to get him in that JaVale role. I think with his injury history, I think he's going to have a hard time finding a contract, especially in this summer when there's not all that much free agent money available. So I think Boogie Cousins can be had on the cheap. So I think if you can get him in L.A., um, uh, kind of have him play that JaVale McGee role, have him and Dwight be the two centers that you play. For for like JaVale brought a lot more athleticism and length around the rim, but he was so like such a space case around the rim sometimes, overhelping, fouling when he shouldn't, all of this other stuff that even though Boogie's not going to be as good of a defensive player uh, in terms of his talent, I think just with his IQ for the game, he'll be just as effective on that end of the ball. So, And then he's going to be a significantly better offensive player, especially with his ability to stretch the floor. So I think Boogie Cousins is at the veteran minimum is a no-brainer if you can get him there. Uh, Darren Collison, it's all about whether or not he's coming back. Um, but Darren Collison uh, gives you just one more additional decision maker who's not going to be a high-volume guy. And he's a really, really good spot-up shooter. Two years ago in Indiana, he was an unbelievable spot-up shooter. So he provides basically a much, much better version of Rondo. The problem is, is if Darren comes back, he's definitely going to be in that uh, exception range. Like They're, they're going to have to pay him. So if you get Darren Collison, that, in my opinion, that takes the wings off the table. That takes Gallinari, Wes Matthews, and Mo Harkless off the table. So um, in order, you know, I was asked to rank these in one of the mailbag questions. Uh, pick up hoop you guys know him he's one of my favorite uh twitter accounts he's always got all the receipts uh, but he was asking about how you'd rank uh if you couldn't get gallinari because i think we all agree gallinari is the the best option and i'll get to why in a second but how would you rank Wes matthews mo harkless uh glenn robinson the third or justin holiday and uh i put uh Wes matthews at the top of this list Wes Matthews is is one of the best perimeter defenders that we have in the league, which is insane for a guy who is playing on a veteran minimum contract in Milwaukee. He's a little bit undersized but uh, in terms of his height, but he's extremely strong and extremely laterally quick. He's very good at making you shoot over the top. He's very good with ball pressure, and he's, he's, it's very difficult to get around him. And as you saw, if you've ever watched Wesley Matthews play, he's, a, he's just a total pest on the ball. And in terms of the, what the Lakers' defensive scheme is, which is heavy ball pressure, forcing guys to drive, Wes Matthews fits into that scheme absolutely perfectly. And so I like him as a fit. Um, I like him as a fit in that role, especially given the fact that he can shoot the ball so well. I'd rank number two, Mo Harkless. Now, Mo Harkless is not as good of a shooter as Wes Matthews, and he's definitely not as laterally quick as Wes Matthews. The reason why I like Mo Harkless is I think he's a bit of an ace in the hole to use against the Clippers. He's a player that 
Uh, I can put on Kawhi and I can feel reasonably reasonably certain that he's going to make him work. He's not going to be able to shut him down, but nobody can. He's going to be able to make him work. So I put Mo Harkless number two. And then uh, between Glenn Robinson III and Justin Holliday, to be 100% honest with you guys, I haven't seen too much of them. I haven't watched a ton of either of them. Um, But I know that I would prefer those other two names I mentioned over them. The reason why Danilo Gallinari is number one on my list is he is a textbook high IQ player that's just going to fit really, really well alongside LeBron James. Now, one of the issues that he had in OKC is he was asked to be too much. Danilo Gallinari was basically like a second option on that Thunder team uh, on any given moment on the floor because he'd play with, uh, you know, Chris Paul and Shea Gilgis Alexander had their offensive responsibilities, but Danilo Gallinari was running a lot of pick and roll. He was doing a lot to generate offense on that team. On the Lakers, with the way that their identity is structured, you can count on the Lakers putting him into a little bit smaller role offensively. He will run pick and roll. He will run stuff with the ball in his hands, but he can do it kind of like when he has it going and when it's free-flowing in the flow of the game. He's not going to be demanded to do that sort of thing. On the defensive side of the ball, he's a classic case of a guy that you can ask to fill an easy defensive role. Hey, Danilo, it doesn't matter if you get blown by. You just got to chase him off the the three-point line. And if he beats you off the three-point line, you've got to be next in rotation and get to somebody else on the floor that's uncovered, which is a lot easier job than asking a guy to be a lockdown individual defensive player. So from that standpoint, I think he's a natural fit. He can shoot the ball, so he's good for spacing. He can attack closeouts. He's got size, uh, and he's got enough quickness to fit into the Laker defensive scheme as a perimeter player. Um, and just all in all, he's a, it, it, with what the Lakers would ask him to do, I think he'd be a home run hitter. The other three names I have on my list are all what I would consider veteran minimum guys, guys that have almost no chance of fetching big paychecks around the league. Uh, Gerald Green, uh, there's a story out that Gerald Green wants to go to Houston again. But Houston's cap is completely messed up, and their owner is a total cheap, uh, total cheap guy. So at this point, chances are uh, there's a good uh, there's a good opportunity that Houston won't bring him back. And he's an example of just another wing that brings some athleticism that you could ask to play a really simplified role in this offense and on this defense. And uh, and you can have him uh, regardless of your cap situation. Uh, Ryan Anderson was another name I brought up. Again, doesn't fit into the defensive scheme, but what he helps you with is he's a really, really good shooter that on any given random night in Charlotte, you know, on a Tuesday in February, you can ask him to play 15 minutes and he'll be able to fit alongside LeBron James, even though he might hurt you on the defensive end of the ball. He eats up minutes and he can help you from the standpoint of, uh, of getting through that 72-game grind in a four-month stretch. It's just depth. And then the last name I put on there was Iman Shumpert. This is a classic example of a guy who could fit into that like uh, lesser version of a Contavious Caldwell-Pope um, type of role. You put him as an off-guard. On offense, he's spotting up and attacking closeouts. And then on the defensive end of the ball, ball pressure has always been one of his strong points. You put him in ball pressure – He's a little bit undersized, so he can't like guard big old rangy wings. But as long as he can force him off the three-point line, that's what you have Anthony Davis and all those centers for. It's a, it's a, it's a brilliant structure to the way that their, uh, their scheme works. So as far as trade targets go, I'm totally, anti, uh, I'm totally anti-Chris Paul. Um, I don't think that he's worth what you'd have to pay in terms of salaries to get it fit. 
the, the to get it to fit. The only universe in which I think Chris Paul makes any sense is if he takes a buyout, which really is down to Chris Paul. And if we've learned anything about Chris Paul and his comments on the subject, he's not taking a pay cut. So unless OKC feels so deeply indebted to Chris Paul that they're willing to cut him a check for $40 million for the next two years to leave, then I don't see this thing happening. And so chances are I think he ends up getting traded to someone else. Um, uh, if, if the Lakers do throw in a ton of salaries and role players and toss away all their depth to try to get Chris Paul, I think that would be a catastrophic mistake. Um, Bradley Beal is completely unrealistic. The two names that I put down that I think are decent fits that make sense with the salary that would work not only in the short term but for the long term for the Lakers was Spencer Dinwiddie and, uh, um, and Victor Oladipo. So these are guys, I think Spencer Dinwiddie makes around $16 million, and then Victor Oladipo's in that $20 million range. Um, both of them are coming up on new contracts in the future soon, but both of them represent players that fit a, uh, a, role, a, a kind of a hole in the roster that we talked about a lot last year, which is just another playmaker alongside LeBron. So in this situation, you'd have to ditch Rondo altogether. Uh, as part of your offense. Because again, like we talked about, you don't want to lose your identity. Your identity is most of the offense runs through LeBron and runs through uh, Anthony Davis. And so what I like about Spencer Dinwiddie is in his time in Brooklyn, he showed an ability to succeed on the offensive side of the floor while not necessarily having a super high usage rate and by being kind of from time to time being under-involved in the offense. And so from that standpoint, I think he's a perfect fit as a third ball handler, a third star, so to speak, on this team. And uh, quite frankly, I think Brooklyn needs to make a move that involves one of their two big perimeter uh, backup players, which is Karis LeVert and Spencer Dinwiddie, because they don't have any depth and they don't have any dirty work guys. And so the move there would be Caruso and Kuzma and uh, whatever salary filler you need to put together um, for Spencer Dinwiddie. Spencer Dinwiddie slides into that uh, that uh, a starting guard role, kind of where Caruso was playing in the finals. I know you guys all love Caruso. I love Caruso too, and he'd be great on the contract next season, but he will eventually get paid, and the Lakers aren't going to be the ones to pay him. So it, you'd lose one year of Alex Caruso for whatever your future is with Spencer Dinwiddie. And Victor Oladipo is another great example of that as well. You get to basically try out Victor Oladipo. You get to see what he's worth in a one-year sample size, and then it's your move if you want to re-sign him next year or if you want to let him go. Uh, and then Kuzma, same exact problem. You're getting rid of Kuzma, but you're uh, eventually going to have to pay him way more than what his actual production is. So it's a simple trade-off of two guys that you're probably not going to eventually want to pay in Kuzma and Caruso for a player that's an instant fit right now, which is uh, that third guard in Dinwiddie and in Oladipo. And then with either player, you kind of have the flexibility of what you want to do signing them long term. And the biggest thing there is you're banking on, you know, that identity I talked about works for right now. And I believe it will work at least through next season. But eventually LeBron will slow down a little bit. And when he does, you need to have a backup plan centered on some other form of high volume ball handler and uh, somebody that can keep, you know, that you can still use LeBron as a as kind of like a Uh, a second option ball handler when he's 38, 39 years old, but you've got somebody that can be that guard that can run a lot of actions with Anthony Davis, actions with LeBron, so on and so forth. So yeah, like I said, no CP3, 
Bradley Beal is not a realistic target. I really like Spencer Dinwiddie. It Spencer Dinwiddie, and I like um, Victor Oladipo. So, um, the last question I have from the mailbag set that I received earlier, and then I'll take one or two from the questions. So, if you guys have any questions, uh, drop them in the comments here. Um, but the last question I had was from a buddy of mine named Travis, who I played against in college. And now he's an assistant coach at a university out in California. He asked me to rank the following duos, not counting any trades or offseason moves, just what you think of these duos if you had to pick them for the next five years. And the duos that he sent me were Luca and Chris Porzingis, Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum, Jamal Murray and Nikola Jokic, Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons, and then Devin Booker and DeAndre Ayton. And so this one was tough because I think there's a difference between, you know, what you could expect from one of these guys next year, uh, one of these duos next year, and what you can expect from them in the next five years. I put I picked Luca and Kristaps Porzingis first, and the, it, it really was simple for me. I think Luca's. I think I ranked him seventh in my top ten players in the league, and that's based on where he is absolutely at this moment. But if he becomes even an average defender and above, and if he becomes an average three-point shooter, so instead of shooting 31% from three, he shoots 37% from three. And if he becomes a decent positional defender who just knows where to be and knows how to rotate, knows how to just be in the right spot, even though he's never asked to be a shutdown defensive player, if he figures those two things out, he's a top three or four player in the league. And Chris uh, Porzingis is, you know, it's not the kind of guy that you think of as a traditional second star, but he is a natural fit with Luca as a, as a spacing five and a guy that you can throw the ball down to on the block when Luca's off the floor and so on and so forth. So I definitely take him uh, moving forward. Uh, secondly, I would take uh, Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. I, I rank Tatum uh, as the 11th best player in the league this year, just ahead of Jimmy Butler at 12. And I, I think Jason Tatum is one of the two guys in the, or one of the few guys in the league that can say that they check two of those elite boxes that I always talk about. Elite defensive versatility, elite isolation scoring, and elite playmaking. Tatum checks two of those boxes. He's elite as a defensively versatile player, and he's elite isolation scorer. And so from that standpoint, I really like him moving forward. And then Jalen Brown is your textbook uh, uh, awesome wing player that can defend all positions, can get you 20 points a night. Uh, uh, those two guys are built to succeed in the playoffs, and I think you're going to see them in the Eastern Conference Finals just about every year for the next few years. Uh, third, I ranked Jokic and uh, uh, Murray. I ranked them third because of the fact that what we saw uh, from this last postseason run um, uh, was one of the biggest upsets in NBA history, and it was built on the fact that Jokic is such a gifted playmaker and is such a gifted uh, a postseason performer because he's so smart. He can pick these defenses apart over the course of a seven-game series. My big question, and the reason, the reason why I don't have these guys ahead of Luka or, uh, or Tatum and Brown, is the fact that Jamal Murray has somewhat of a track record of being an inconsistent postseason performer. And it's really hard to say whether or not this most recent run in the bubble can really de- can be depended on moving forward. And so from that standpoint, if I had a gun to my head, if I, had, if I was a betting man and I had to pick these duos in order, I would pick, um, I would pick uh, Murray and Jokic third based on the fact that I can't really necessarily depend on Murray. Uh, fourth, I put Embiid and Simmons. Uh, the irony of this list that Travis sent me is he's texted them to me in the order that I would have ranked them in. 
but I had uh, Joel Embiid and Simmons fourth simply because of the fact that I think they're a really clunky basketball fit. They make a ton of sense defensively on paper in the regular season, but I do have some concerns about Joel Embiid as a uh, versatile defender against the absolute best of the best teams, teams that will force him to guard on the perimeter, teams that won't allow him to hawk the paint. I mean, you just saw in that series with Miami when uh, when Miami put uh, uh, Kelly Olynyk on the floor and Anthony Davis was forced to guard on the perimeter, Miami was able to kind of neutralize a lot of Anthony Davis's defensive impact. And then in Game 6, when they leaned too heavily on Bam Adebayo, you saw Anthony Davis play one of the best defensive games that we've ever seen because he completely locked down the paint because he had no interest in guarding Bam as he kept spotting up on the elbows. So from that standpoint, like I worry a little bit about Embiid's defensive versatility when like the really, really good teams will force him to guard out on the perimeter. And then we all know about Ben Simmons. He has uh, been, uh, in his last few postseason runs, he's basically been relegated to a guy who has to operate out of the dunker spot and uh, uh, can't necessarily run offense against teams that are packing the paint and forcing him to be a you know a primary scoring option. So it's a really clunky fit. I think they're easily the most likely players to get traded and moved around. And uh, uh, from that standpoint, I had them fourth on my list. And then Booker and Aiton, I had fifth. Uh, Aiton is the worst player on this list, in my opinion, by a decent margin. He showed some potential last year uh, uh, towards the end of the year. As a as a guy who was a 2010 type of uh, you know a three and D type of center who could space the floor but could also operate as a roll man and and finish around the rim a lot. Um, I just my thing with Aiton is he's just another version of you know we have this new we have this new kind of resurgence of centers right that is happening around the league. But it's important to understand that like who are the two best centers? Not traditional guys. You know Jokic, this kind of chubby slow you know guy who's incredibly skilled and his basketball IQ is off the charts and he can pass unbelievably well and he's a you know a dead-eye shooter and a really good you know kind of crafty scorer around the rim and then I've got uh, Anthony Davis who's just a complete athletic freak who can shoot from the mid-range who can shoot from the three-point line who can do all of these things from a versatility standpoint and guys like Embiid and guys like Aiton who's just a worse version of Embiid those guys kind of represent you know, leftovers from a bygone era. And while their size represents, you know, a defensive option to throw at those super elite centers, I do worry about whether or not they'll always just be an inferior version of those guys when they get into a playoff series with them. I actually really, really do like Devin Booker. I, um, I am a fan of what his skill set represents in today's NBA. He's an elite isolation scorer, but he's beneath a lot of the other guys on this list. He's beneath Tatum. He's beneath uh, a Luka in the sense that he's not a great elite playmaker and he's not a great elite defensive player. So from that standpoint, he's a guy who only checks one of those boxes and it kind of puts him in a situation where um, uh, in a playoff series, he's just going to be coming up against better players. So I've got, you know, I, t- I talk all the time about those three things, elite defensive versatility, elite isolation scoring, and elite playmaking. Between Booker and Ayton, I'm getting maybe one of those. I'm getting elite isolation scoring from Booker, but I'm not getting playmaking. I'm not getting defense. And with Aiden, I'm not sure that he's defensively versatile in his ability to guard on the perimeter. He's not an elite isolation scorer, and he's not an elite playmaker. So from that standpoint, just following kind of my traditional uh, you know, ideologies that I follow in basketball, uh, those, the, those guys just aren't necessarily the type of player that I would put my confidence in 
uh, uh, in the next five years. So on that note, I had uh, a, a question, all the questions that I received uh, in the broadcast were associated with the Laker offseason stuff, which I already talked about. Like I said, I'm going to do a much longer drawn out version of that with Raj uh, later on in this quote unquote NBA summer. Um, but anyways, I really, really appreciate all of you guys for tuning in. As usual, this will be re-released as a podcast here probably in the next five minutes. If you guys uh, have, haven't taken the time to rate or review, I would really appreciate if you guys would do that for me. It means a lot to me. Uh, and it, uh, next Wednesday, I have Tommy coming on to go over my top ten list and my uh, MJ LeBron stuff. So that will probably, unless there's some big story that comes up over the weekend, that will probably be my next podcast. Um, but yeah, so we've already, this is already four episodes, so uh, I can't believe how fast this is moving, and I, I, I you know, I, uh, the last one that I did yesterday already has over 2,000 listens, and I'm just extremely thankful for you guys and, and, uh, and the support that you've given, and I'm looking forward to the journey. So have a good rest of your night, and I'll talk to you guys next week.